90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, probably more comfortable than you are recording today. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. I am leaning against a table with some computers on it in a random hallway of the <laughs> Memorial Union at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, I'd like to say it's probably not the first podcast that's been recorded there, but no, it probably has. <laughs> It might very well be this, unfortunately, was the most echo-free place that I could find uh, late at night. I'm here for a workshop, so we're we're busy during the day from, you know, pretty much 8 to 6. And this was about the best that, uh, that I could find. So hopefully the audio isn't too bad. I do apologize, though. Um, I think our super exciting topic will make up for any lackluster audio on your part, is what I'm guessing this week anyway. You know, maybe it sounds like I'm talking from really far away, which <laughs> could be appropriate. Exactly. We're just trying to set the mood a little bit. <laughs> so today we get to talk about space, which is one of our favorite things, and geology, which is also one of our favorite things, and hey, geophysics yeah. from spacecraft, which is one of my favorite things. And don't forget, we have a little blurb about the atmosphere as well. This is basically our favorite thing show. <laughs> yes. Dear NASA, these are a few of our favorite things. <laughs> well, I will say Pluto was always my favorite Disney character, too. So, you know, we'll throw it Yes. All in so there. we mentioned this last week, but the folks over at the Orbital Mechanics uh, kind of threw this, uh, this over to us to talk about the geology of Pluto from the New Horizons mission. And we had to do quite a bit of reading to get prepared for this. And it's an absolutely fascinating topic. <laughs> it is. I was really reading up until recording this podcast, not because I was ill-prepared, as we talked about in the abstract show, but <laughs> because I kept just <laughs> finding more and more awesome pictures that are coming back from New Horizons of Pluto and its moons and everything it's been exploring. And it's so exciting for geosciences i think because like you said geology the atmosphere all kinds of new stuff that it's going to do it's a really cool mission that's highly highly successful oh yes and we've got a lot of exciting things about the mission but i thought it would be good to back up and talk just about some pluto basics to start off with and not pluto the dog but pluto the dwarf planet that's what we're officially calling it now right yeah, thanks, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, <laughs> it is officially a dwarf planet in the Kuiper Belt, and it's pretty small. It's about 0.18 the radius of Earth, which makes it smaller than our moon. Right, and it's about 0.178 the mass of our moon. So it's about two-thirds the size and super low mass comparatively. So two-thirds the size of our moon and 0.178 the mass of the moon that doesn't quite add up. That means that the, the composition has to be pretty interesting. Uh, exactly, which hopefully we're going to get uh, some more ideas of what the composition of Pluto is back from all of this data that New Horizons is collecting. I mean, the density is super low, average 1.87 grams per cubic centimeter. And in comparison, if you're not familiar with it, Earth is about 2.6-ish on average. 
Right, and because it has such a low mass and such a small size, the gravity is also pretty low. Uh, we're looking at just over half a G if you were on the surface. Right, so super tiny. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is gravity actually helped predict uh, both Neptune and Pluto because they were looking at orbital perturbations of the planet Uranus and said there has to be at least one body, maybe two more. Exactly. Um, if you don't quite grasp that, because it's sort of a hard topic to think that you see Uranus's orbit moving around and you think something must be affecting it. Um, there is an APOD, so an astronomy picture of the day, from January 12th of 2015, and it actually allows you to go in and do some sort of planet seeding of your own. And you can put in a planet that's sort of the size of Earth, or half the size of Earth, and then you can put in some other planets and see how that affects the orbit. It's actually a really fun game, um, <laughs> and I, I thought it was kind of relevant to how we figured out that Neptune and Pluto had to be there. So if you can't quite grasp that, you should go play Super Planet Crash. And you can see how these <laughs> little bodies will affect neighboring bodies' orbits nearby. Yeah, and I wish you hadn't said that because now that's what I'm going to be doing for the remainder <laughs> of the show. I suggest putting in a, a giant and it makes everything fall apart and it's super fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I know some of these predictions have come from um, Percival Lowell, who you and I both travel to Lowell Observatory, and this is a really cool story. Yeah, it is. So the hunt for Pluto started in 1906, and unfortunately, Percival Lowell died about a decade later, unknowingly having captured photos that proved Pluto's existence. <laughs> That's so, so painful. But it was his original guesses about where Pluto you know, was, which led to actually finding it in 1930, correct? Yeah, so this was by a guy, uh, Clyde Tombaugh, who actually was working at Lowell Observatory. And you mentioned that we had both been there. If you get a chance to go, it's really wonderful. Uh, you get to see the telescopes. They have viewings at night. You can see the telescope that the photos of Pluto were taken with, uh, the initial ones where they found it. And it's just, yeah, there's a frying pan covering one of the telescopes because this was established during the Frontier Days, and it's still there from when Percival Lowell put it there. <laughs> Oh, yes, it's it's a phenomenal place. And you can look through some of these antiquity telescopes, um, and the museum there is just top-notch. Um, I had a Pluto shirt that I bought there, and I have to admit I got rid of it because it said Pluto is cool, and then on the back it said minus 480 degrees Fahrenheit cool. And I couldn't wear it because it was in Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> yes, so they took these photos, and basically what happened is they would take a photo of the night sky, and then a few days later, or a week later maybe, they would go back and take another photo of the same section of sky, and then use what's called a blink comparator. And that's basically just two projectors showing the photo with a motor spinning a black piece of cardboard over them, basically. Uh, <laughs> so that the photos flicker back and forth very rapidly, and you look for things that move, because those are probably planets or asteroids. Which is basically what we do now, but just a little more technologically advanced. Right. Now we have computer algorithms that go through and do this. Uh, machine vision is really... Exactly. 
uh, a lot easier than looking at blinky photos all day in a dark room. <laughs> Probably the same eye strain on you, but anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, and <laughs> there's lots of really interesting history about Pluto, but as I was putting some show notes together, I said, well, we want to really want to talk about new results, so I'm going to put some links in the show notes. Uh, if you want to go more into the history of Pluto and of like everything else in science, there's a legal battle over it. Uh, <laughs> yes. Pretty interesting to read. Yes, it's a really fascinating story. A lot of this is outlined at the Lowell Observatory. So if you're anywhere near Flagstaff, again, it's well worth the time to go there, especially in the evening. Oh, yes. And so a couple more basics about Pluto before we get to New Horizons. No more history, but some more basics. It has an orbital period of 248 years and sometimes it's closer than Neptune to the sun, but they can actually never collide for several reasons, partially because its orbit is puts it well above Neptune when they're anywhere in the same vicinity. Right, exactly. And I always remember as a kid being confused when I was doing my mnemonic device for the planets about how Pluto never fell into the last spot for some of the time, but playing this uh, super planet crash will show you how that works. <laughs> well, and I'm guessing in super planet crash, you can probably get chaotic orbits. Is that right? Oh, yes. <laughs> you sure can, which is basically what Pluto has, right? Yeah, the orbit's chaotic, and we can predict it backwards and forwards for a few million years. So that may not seem chaotic, but when you go over the, the Lipinoff time, we basically have no idea what the orbit's going to look like. And that's somewhere in the range of 10 million years, but I don't think anybody trusts it out that far. Uh, this sort of leads to a point that the orbital mechanics pointed out, and it's kind of the place to say this, is that you know we know very little about planet formation. And so this Pluto's chaotic orbit is just one more thing that we can throw into the basket and say, you know, we've, there's this big fight about whether it's a planet, whether it's a dwarf planet, whether it's a Kuiper Belt object, and that chaotic orbit is one of those things that we're just kind of like, uh, well, it doesn't really follow the model. What do we do with it? Yeah. Well, and it's even weirder because it's really a binary system with one of its moons. Uh, right. So Charon uh, is its largest moon, and it's nearly the same size as Pluto, and so a lot of astronomers just sort of categorized Pluto and Charon as this binary system. But now we know that Pluto has four other moons besides Charon, um, three of which were discovered due to specifically this New Horizons research back in 2005 while it was being researched. And then in 2012, as New Horizons was approaching Pluto, we found three of the other moons. Um, Hubble found the fifth moon, just from looking at Pluto uh, in 2011. Yeah, it's really amazing that we're still discovering moons of planets in our solar system in <laughs> the late 2000s. <laughs> I know. I I mean, I, I'd read that Pluto had five moons. I'm like, when was the last one discovered? Yeah, and it was while they were sort of vetting the way for New Horizons, trying to figure out were there anything, you know, any objects in the way or anything that was going to mess up New Horizons as approached Pluto. Oh, it turns out there are two moons there that we didn't know about. So <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, and New Horizons itself, this had to be an, an absolutely gut-wrenching project to work on because it <laughs> launched in January of 2006, and then uh, almost 10 years later, you start collecting science results. 
I am only, only going to work on nearby planets <laughs> if my career <laughs> takes me this way. Because can you imagine? I mean, we get mad when we have to wait a month to get data back from our paleomagnetics lab. And I'm sure you guys get the same way about your triax experiments. But nine years? <laughs> nine yeah. years. Well, and this is one of those things where also something could go wrong and you have one shot. And that's it. Because <laughs> your <laughs> I mean, space, space is hard. <laughs> and really big. And really big. And deep space is really hard and really hard to hit anything. Exactly. Which makes this even more impressive, the data that we're starting to get back from New Horizons. So it launched in January uh, of 2006. And its closest flyby was just this last month, so July 14th um, of this year, and it came within 7,800 miles of the surface of Pluto. Right, which sounds like a long ways away, but (laughs) (laughs) the data that is coming back is absolutely phenomenal. And so there are about seven main instruments on there. Um, Really quickly, we'll just go over. There's one called LORI, the Long Range Reconnaissance Imager. That's taken a lot of the really pretty photos that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, SWAP, the Solar Wind Pluto Experiment that we'll probably actually talk about a little bit later. Uh, the Pluto Energetic Particle Spectrometer Science Investigation. I like this name. It's Pepsi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, ALICE, which is a UV imaging spectrometer. And then... A 2.4-inch telescope that has a visible and near-IR camera on it that's affectionately called Ralph. (laughs) Of course, because if you have Alice, you have to have Ralph. Right. (laughs) And then, uh, well, there's two more, but this next one is really cool because it was built by uh, University of Colorado Boulder students. And it is is the student dust counter. (laughs) Which is so awesome that... Nine years ago, these students came up with this, and it's stuck on a spacecraft that is millions of miles away now, taking dust readings for us. Yeah, because they had no idea really what the concentration of dust particles was like as you would approach and go away from the Pluto system. And yeah, they needed somebody to build it and got some engineering and aerospace students involved. Uh, Really cool idea, and great for them as... You know, a lot of them probably have children now. <laughs> exactly. That's so cool. And it's important because it goes back to the whole planet formation thing. You know, planets have thought to have been, as they were coalescing, they've sort of swept clean their little planetary neighborhoods. Um, so in the debate of whether Pluto is this Kuiper Belt object or if it's actually, you know, a dwarf planet or a real planet, as we would say, um, you know, the amount of sort of stuff that it has around it really matters because most planets have swept their orbits clean so what about pluto's weird orbit so the data from that will be really interesting to see well yeah and i'm curious how that works too because pluto's orbit as we just said isn't entirely stable right so So, it's going to be sweeping out a pretty large large swath of space and maybe uh, not multiple times exactly that's exactly true so it'll be cool to see what they have to say about that then yeah. And then in, adi- in addition to that, you have the Radio Science Experiment, or REX. Yeah, and I didn't find a ton on this one. Uh, so we'll just leave it at that because I haven't seen any results coming back from REX yet, though I'm sure if someone has, 
uh, we'll hear from them, and we'd like to. But uh, yes. it'll take a little while to get all of these data back, as we will talk about uh, later on in the show. And you'll see why we haven't heard of a lot of these instruments uh, just in the public eye yet. Exactly. Um, but speaking of that, so we're sending the spacecraft out to Pluto. But as with all sort of science things, you're more likely to get funded if you get the most bang for your buck. And so New Horizons did a lot of science along the way. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, It got lots of asteroids, Mars, Jupiter, the Jovian moons. uh, Really are getting a lot of mileage out of this spacecraft. (laughs) Exactly. And as with all things, you know, in the government, um, when you put an instrument on a spacecraft, it really has to be an instrument either that's been used and tested before, because that can speed along you building it, or, you know, these new instruments that you're going to put on a spacecraft, you do have to do a lot of testing. So, with this more bang for your buck, a lot of these instruments have been used sort of on other spacecraft before, and then there are a couple of new ones that are on New Horizons. Right, and, you know, it's like they always say, the spacecraft design life cycle starts so early because there's so much qualification to go through before launch, and then travel time is long. You know, the Curiosity rover, uh, my iPhone 6 Plus is a very comparable, if not slightly better, camera. (laughs) Exactly. And that's exactly. always been the case. Space hardware has always been a little bit behind peak consumer hardware, but it has to be radiation hardened and tested, and it's just a really awful environment to have to send electronics into. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. Um, and hopefully no one's going to be hacking the, hacking into the New Horizons like, you know, so many of our cars are getting hacked into now here <laughs> as technology right. moves fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's not to say that New Horizons didn't have some problems along the way. No. In fact, there was one that uh, terrified space fans. Oh. And I, I can't even imagine team members. I know several of them said they were sleeping in their offices. Uh, on July 4th of this year, uh, New Horizons sent a distress signal saying that it had switched to its backup computer and gone into safe mode. Which is awful because obviously two weeks from then is when, well, not even 10 days from then is when they were um, awaiting the closest flyby of Pluto. So I can't imagine this feeling. And this is basically the spacecraft blue screen of death. (laughs) It's saying Um, that something is really wrong with the primary computer. We've detected it. We switched to a backup computer and we're doing absolutely no science. We've powered a lot of things down, and we're doing minimal communication until folks on the ground can figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. But thank God it wasn't the worst outcome of the blue screen of death. No, no, and uh, it wasn't a, <laughs> just to kick the tires and reboot either. It <laughs> turns out that there was a flaw in the timing of some of the commands that were getting the spacecraft ready to do its flyby. And basically what it tried to do is it compressed some data that it had already taken to make some more room on its onboard storage for the flyby data. And at the same time, it tried to make a backup copy of the flyby plan, and it overloaded the main computer. Oh, which is, you know, 10 years ago technology computers, so. Well, 10 years ago launch, probably 20 years ago technology. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that's probably absolutely right, exactly. But it only took three days, and they figured it out, 
and it got back up and running as it approached Pluto. Yeah, and they said that there were really no impacts to the main goals and very minimal impacts to some of the others. But one reason it took so long to get back up and running is it's not trivial to talk to the spacecraft because even though the radio signal is traveling at the speed of light, the round-trip radio delay, so from the time they tell New Horizons, send me your status, to the time they receive the status from the spacecraft is about nine hours. That's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's four and a half hours each way, plus processing time on both ends. And just, you know, it's like it's like trying to talk to somebody uh, through the Postal Service. Exactly. Um, exactly. It really lends itself to the enormity of how successful New Horizons is to have gotten where it is and to sending back these amazing pictures. I mean, if you're not on Twitter following the New Horizons team, uh, you've got to get online and look at these because it's doing amazing work out there now that it's back up and running. Yes, and some of that amazing work we've got to see thanks to the team basically spending sleepless nights processing <laughs> data. <laughs> oh, let's not kid ourselves. We know the interns are processing those images. <laughs> but geologically this is mind-blowing it's like nothing that we assumed on pluto at least nothing i assumed um there's been some great stuff coming back well the coolest thing is you know you always expect to see something like the moon that's very cratered saying that there's no active (laughs) geological processes it's just getting hit occasionally by bolides and drifting through space at exactly. a pretty good rate of speed. Exactly, which I think is what everyone expected, but that's not the case. No, Pluto is active. It's not dead at all. It's actually got geologic processes on the surface. <laughs> so if we think about Mars, how we know the different ages, at least relatively and a little bit quantitatively, of the geology is the density of the cratering. So if something is more densely cratered and it's got a lot of them that you can see now, you know that it's not geologically active because if resurfacing was happening, like on Venus, you're not gonna see a lot of craters because they've been covered up by younger geological processes. And so Pluto has a lot of not very cratered surfaces suggesting that those surfaces are less than 100 million years old, which is really really young yeah that's yesterday in geologic time especially in planetary geologic time oh yes exactly i mean you figure this was you know made four billion years ago but there's still a lot of active geology happening on pluto that is so cool um and not only that there's a lot of really cool for lack of a better word i'd just say glacial processes that are happening on pluto too yeah, and this is, you know, everybody was interpreting images as New Horizons was approaching, and there's all oh, this, there's this heart-looking thing, and there's this whale-looking thing, <laughs> and it, it was very entertaining to watch people draw shapes, uh, but these things are actually starting to get named, uh, one of them named in honor of Clyde Tombaugh, uh, the discoverer, official discoverer of Pluto, and it's this bright, heart-shaped place on the side of the planet that is ice. 
And it's not like ice like we think of it. So the ice on Pluto is going to be mostly nitrogen ice um, and also probably some methane ice. And this ice is acting just like glaciers on Earth act. Right. So water ice would be really brittle at minus 390 Fahrenheit, uh, minus 234 <laughs> Celsius for those of you who <laughs> think in Celsius. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> but like you said, the, the nitrogen ice flows, and this is like glaciers here on Earth or ice streams down in Antarctica, that you can think of it as if you drop uh, pancake batter into your pan, it spreads under its own weight, spreads under gravitational force, and that's basically what the ice on Pluto is doing. Exactly, and not only that, you have some 11,000-foot mountains of this ice as well. I mean, that's... That's the Rockies right there. Um, that's some really tall ice. <laughs> yeah. And even at a half a G, that's a lot of gravitational driving force. Right. Yep, exactly. Um, I think there's probably a lot of, and this is where um, the lorry comes in, the long-range reconnaissance imager is going to help put some elevations on this because it's not just this pockmarked crater. There's a lot of interesting geology underneath this ice that we're trying to get a hold of too yeah well and also how the ice accumulates on the surface even (laughs) that is under debate (laughs) uh yes um we'll talk about that on when we talk about charon here in a minute too because it's not exactly how you would think of it on earth right it's not necessarily water well nitrogen or methane that gets frozen over time it's weird (laughs) yeah well i mean we always think of you know snow accumulation inland making the center of antarctica or different glacial places high and flowing outwards but that could happen there could be some top-down frosting from the atmosphere but the favored model uh, used the very technical term burbling (laughs) up through the crust (laughs) Uh, well it it gives you a instant visual of that geologic process right there but and that burbling (laughs) is driven by heat that's still inside pluto yes there is heat inside a planet (laughs) that is minus 234 celsius at the surface exactly (laughs) and it goes back again to what's your definition of you know planetary formation do these bodies have to be hot on the inside, that sort of thing, you know, or do they still have to be active? And that's, that's really interesting to me to think about those processes and try to start categorizing them. Right. I mean, a lot of that heat is, like you said, it's left over from initial collisions, formation, uh, maybe some radioisotopes. I don't know how much radioisotopes we'd have out here. Uh, Right. It's, it's it's stuck around for quite a while. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if it's been enough heat to start moving these nitrogen glaciers in the last hundred million years, that's really young stuff. Yeah, well, and this the fun science didn't stop. So during the flyby, the all the instruments were pointed at the surface, which means the antenna was pointed away from Earth. So we didn't hear anything for a while. I know that the folks were really (laughs) tense because if something had gone wrong they could have been pointing off into space collecting lots of data on really nice cold black space and not <laughs> exactly. known it until after they were already gone 
<laughs> exactly. And that sort of happened, right? When they first opened up the picture, it wasn't of Pluto like they thought. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> this was a, a little bit of a terrifying experience again for the team. <laughs> that, And we've got a link that has some interviews with the team members about this. Yeah, uh, They opened the file that they thought would be the best image of Pluto that they would get before the spacecraft went into flyby mode, and they saw an image of the moon. <laughs> and so there was, there was a momentary freak out about that, and then they said, oh, well, we've already seen this image. We're looking at an old image. Okay. We need to find the picture of Pluto. But they couldn't. And they should. <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> this goes back to naming your files and understanding your file directory structures. <laughs> yeah, and eventually they found it. It was in the wrong directory on an FTP server. And the team member they interviewed said, quote, I had been up a lot, end quote. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> but the, the one thing I, I do want to point out to you that they specifically mentioned in the Apple or in the article that they were using Apple Thunderbolt displays and Apple <laughs> products to do all of this processing. Oh, yeah, well, you got to pay for those <clears throat> endorsements somehow, Apple. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the first images, once they did finally find them, amazing. Uh, yeah, they said that it was like a, a surfer jaw-dropping just collective whoa <laughs> <laughs> when they opened it up oh i mean as cool as the geology is though let's not forget about our other love right so pluto's atmosphere pluto's atmosphere and this was actually after the flyby right right mm -hmm. so they turned around and took a picture of the uh level of pluto blocking the sun and they actually got an image of the thin atmosphere that's around pluto and there was just some, some surprises there as well. Right. So they use this occultation technique, basically, to determine if anything has an atmosphere. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that here in a minute, about Charon as well. But so they turned around to look at this atmosphere. And it's really weird <laughs> because Pluto is red, but not like Mars red. Turns out that it's due to the stuff floating around in its atmosphere. Yeah, and so <laughs> they had an idea that this process could go on in the atmosphere that we're going to talk about, but that's about where the similarities between the model and the observations ended, was <laughs> that this looks like the model might have had the right initial idea. So UV light from the sun comes in and strikes the atmosphere, and methane that's in the atmosphere gets broken down into some more simple hydrocarbons. Uh, which means things like ethylene and acetylene build up. And we have we use acetylene all the time in oxyacetylene cutting torches <laughs> here on right. Earth. So <laughs> yes, it's not a, not a totally alien compound to us. Right, exactly. And, you know, we know of other bodies within our solar system that have these hydrocarbon atmospheres as well. Right, and so eventually it starts to get cold. The cold parts of the atmosphere condense, so you end up getting condensed acetylene and ethylene. And they get converted into these things called theolins. And those are red. Some of them get suspended in the atmosphere and some fall out. Exactly. So these weird theolins that are red in color 
also sort of explain why Charn is red in color as well, but these weird ethylene and acetylene solids, which we don't have on Earth, <laughs> uh, collect together, and that buildup of them, they sort of rain down, and they stain the planet's surface red, which is what we're seeing in these true color images of both Pluto and Charon. Yeah. Well, and the wild thing was, the models said that the particles that remain suspended in the atmosphere shouldn't really be much over 30 kilometers, which is about 20 miles, off the surface. But when they but. looked at the image, they were 130 kilometers or 81 miles above the surface. That's crazy. So this atmosphere is not, I'm not going to say thicker than we thought, but it certainly extends further out than we would have thought. Yeah. And the weird thing is the atmosphere is pretty dynamic in the fact that it's going away rapidly. Right. And where is it going? Well, part of it, it turns out, is probably going to Charon. Um, as we mentioned before, people think that Charon and Pluto sort of act like this binary system, basically due to Charon's large size. And so it's got some gravity. It's a little less than Pluto's. But it's enough that as they orbit each other, I think that Charon might be siphoning off Pluto's atmosphere. Right, and I mean, it's it's got everything going against it. It's getting further away from the sun. Things are getting colder. Its moon is sucking away its atmosphere. Uh, really, it doesn't look good for Pluto's atmosphere. It might totally collapse <laughs> by the time it gets all the way out to the end of its orbit, they speculate. Uh, right, exactly. Um, they don't know about the timing of some of these processes, um, but as, as always, these are just guesses. This is data that we've had for three weeks now. Um, but when they looked at Charon, they saw this big red spot sort of on, not like Pluto's red spot, <laughs> but <laughs> its pole was red, and they thought, that's weird. Um, and they think that it's probably similar to why Pluto appears red, and it's probably the exact same thing, because Charon's gravity is accepting Pluto's atmosphere, and these weird theolans are condensing, and floating down to the surface of Charon. And so it's really cold because Pluto and Charon have that, you know, 200 plus year um, rotation. As long as that is ice and frozen in that winter side of the pole, that's where the atmosphere is going. Uh, they think it's probably taken less than a million years for that to form. So that's also pretty, a pretty young geologic process. Yeah, that's pretty fast for something yes. that size. <laughs> exactly. Um, there, That's just a guess. There's also a lot of other guesses. This could be geological. So if you think of you're looking at something this far away and you see a dark spot, well, it could be a hole because frequently that's what we see. If we look at Earth from satellite pictures, the darker big basins appear darker than the rest of the atmosphere. So that's also um, they're going to use Lori to point at this pole on Charon to see what the elevation estimates are. So maybe this is just a big basin that has this reddish crust. Maybe it's not this buildup um, of Pluto's atmosphere. Um, but they're going to do the same thing, this occultation method. They've done that from Earth to look at Charon to see if it has an atmosphere. So far we can't see it, and that means that the upper limit of the pressure on Charon's atmosphere has to be one microbar. 
but we will (laughs) (laughs) which is tiny (laughs) yeah (laughs) but new horizons will also do an occultation of charon to test its atmosphere it's much more sensitive because it's much closer and it can see down to one nanobar so we can say that if it does have an atmosphere it's between a nanobar and a microbar of pressure which is nothing (laughs) yeah exactly so the average surface pressure on the earth is 1025 millibars so yes virtually nothing but maybe it's enough to siphon off these weird um hydrocarbons yeah, I mean, we're looking at you know nine orders of magnitude plus down, pressure-wise. <laughs> but when you don't have a lot of gravity and the system is close, I could see it working. Uh, though the idea of it being geological is also intriguing to me. It also strikes me as a little odd that all of the, not all, but a lot of the interesting things that we find in our solar system are red spots. Uh, you know, I never thought of that. That's pretty funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> both atmospheric and geological. Uh, that's really cool. Obviously, yeah, we love red stuff, apparently. <laughs> apparently, red shift, <laughs> red spots, and all red in astronomy. Uh, exactly, the red planet. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so the the future of New Horizons, you know, the, it did fly by and the mission is nowhere near over this was an incredibly expensive mission and as you mentioned they're going to get everything they can back from it (laughs) so there's going to be like two more months of particle and plasma uh, instrument gathering so that's going to be a while before we really start piping data back to earth and in that time scientists will choose between two more kuiper belt objects and send horizons to meet up with them in 2019 that'll be super exciting hopefully new horizons will still be going because that's part of the debate what is pluto and if we can get a hold of one of these kuiper belt objects up close with a spacecraft and make some comparisons maybe we'll get new planets or maybe pluto will get demoted for good though i doubt that's going to happen after these pictures (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and just getting that data back is an incredible (laughs) process and I don't think people realize, uh, well, people that are following this mission know already, it's going to take about 16 months to transmit all of the data collected during the flyby alone home. Right. And so that's not like 16 months for data to get here. It's 16 months for all the data we're collecting right now as it's closest to Pluto. So hopefully it'll be going for a lot longer than just those 16 months, but that's a lot of data. All I can think of now is that's a lot of grad students that need to get on that. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a data center. That's a lot of grad students. But the reason it takes so long is because it's so far away that even with a 70 meter deep space network satellite dish, really about a kilobit per second is what you can hope for. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, so (laughs) tiny fractions of dial-up modem speed, for those of you that remember that. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And then the example that they cited was a LORI image, typical LORI image, is 1,024 pixels square. That number should ring a bell. powers of two for you computer people. And then (laughs) each pixel is represented as a 12-bit number. Once again, digitization of some analog quantity. And right. so even with a lossless compression, 
that's about 42 minutes of uninterrupted oh. data communication for that one image. That that image could be the answer to life, the universe, and everything right there. Well, it is 42, 42 minutes. minutes away. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. So 42, yeah, that's, that's longer than to get an AOL email from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> the other tricky part is, you know, everything is moving. I have no idea. I'm guessing use a heliocentric reference frame to do a lot of this. All uh, right. Dish pointing. But everything is moving in the system. So maybe eight hours a day you can get communication with the spacecraft from the Deep Space Network. Granted, they have other spacecraft they need to communicate with. There are other objectives. But just from a geometry standpoint, eight hours a day is probably the best you're going to do. Oh, my goodness. So once we get further away from Pluto and we've stopped collecting all this continuous data, is there anything we can do to speed that up? Well, there was an idea that... (laughs) After New Horizons launched, they said, well, there are two power amplifiers for the radios. They're called Twitters. It's like a, say Twitter, but like you're from Boston. And like everything else, it's an acronym. But each of these has a different polarization. So the idea was we power them both up. You transmit data back on both streams. Here on the ground, we can deconvolve those different polarizations and get two data streams out. So you're effectively, you know, two two kilobits per second. Uh, You're you're really getting data back then. And (laughs) the the issue is the RTG, so the, the radioactive power plant on the spacecraft, its output has gone down enough that to turn both of those amps on now, they would have to shut down other things, including science experiments. Gotcha. And they're not so, going to do that anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So. so it looks like 16 months. But there are a couple of other fun Pluto things that uh, you can do while you're stuck here on the ground and not looking at pretty <laughs> pictures in a control room (laughs) uh these are some really fun links to read and follow up on too that you have in here yeah so a lot of articles things that we've read things that we talked about things we don't have time to talk about uh the technical details of some of these things are in the links but there's a really cool project uh called pluto time Um, I had a lot of fun with this one. Um, it does some cool stuff. I'll, I'll let you, you found this guy, so I'll let you explain what it does. Well, the idea is you put in where you are, and it gives you a time, like 8.23 in the evening. And if you go outside and take a picture, the lighting is what it would look like if you were on Pluto. And That's awesome. Let me tell you, it's a surprising amount of light. For how far away it is from everything that gives us light. Yeah. So you should definitely check it out, do it. NASA wanted you to tweet the photos to them. Uh, We would love it if you would add us in that tagline so we get to see where all of you all live and what Pluto time looks like at your location. Let's not kid ourselves, John. We know where our parents live. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's true. Our, our four listeners. 
Um, there's a lot of other cool stuff on here. Um, so for those of you that are super interested in geologic processes, there's talking about the glacial flows, which I just find outrageously fascinating because it's the same process, different media in nitrogen versus water ice. Uh, and then there's a thousand of pictures out here on NASA's websites, on space.com's websites, and then you've got this one from Science Mag. Yeah, so definitely check all those out. I'm sure that we'll revisit this topic as more interesting data comes back. And I actually really want to talk to some of our glaciologists when I get back to Penn State and see how excited they are about this. Uh, ex exactly. Um, we don't do a lot of glacial studies here, obviously, but that's why I get so excited about it. So I can't imagine about somebody that actually studies it, how excited they are about it. Well, and you think about a system uh, that's got glacial processes happening, that's undergoing extreme climate change. Uh, <laughs> Pluto is your... <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> yeah. That's our future. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the chaotic <laughs> orbit is due to some kind of weird glacial process. <laughs> Weirder stuff has happened. <laughs> Weirder things have happened. I, m I remember there was a talk uh, at the Lunar and Planetary Science Convention, which I really wish I could go to this year uh, <laughs> to see all uh -huh. of these results, uh, about the South Polar Aiken Basin on the moon actually just being a, a large impact crater and yes. it used to be about at the equator of the moon, and then the moon's rotational axis it, shifted it because of that mass loss. Exactly. Hey, I think there's some stuff out there about Mars suggesting the same thing. So. Oh, I haven't seen that. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I can't imagine how heavy all this ice is on the side of Pluto, but it's pretty concentrated. So I uh, would imagine it does have some pretty significant effects on the orbit. Exactly. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing all kinds of things about that. You're absolutely right. LPSC is held in March on spring break every year. I remember I saw some of the first Cassini photos at an LPSC conference, and I'll never forget sort of the big crowd and how exciting it was to see these pictures of Saturn for the first time during that conference. So that would oh, be yes. really and great to get to. It's in the Woodlands, Texas. It's not too horribly far from Johnson if you want to go down there. And I think the last one I attended was right before Mars Science Lab. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was really great. But before we get too long, I think technically we're still in summer shorts. Uh, this one has not been. Sorry. <laughs> it was too exciting to cut short. Yes. <laughs> you found an interesting, fun paper for us that I'm really curious to hear your explanation of. <laughs> so I found this paper, well, not the paper technically, but um, on my travels this summer, I visited the Montana State University Museum of the Rockies, which is in Bozeman. So anyone that is near Montana State has to go to this museum. If you even remotely have ever liked dinosaurs, this is where, <laughs> where you should go. There were some really, really amazing um, exhibits there, um, including they had this line of triceratops skulls, because there are a lot of triceratops that they found um, near in the in the western part of the U.S. And so it went from like big daddy triceratops that had been hurt all the way down to little baby triceratops. And it was a series of like 14 skulls 
So wow. cool. <laughs> yes. And what they also have, because T-Rexes are found a lot in Montana, um, are a lot of T-Rexes. They have one of like the most um, complete T-Rex skeletons, and it's actually on display. It's quite amazing. Um, but the one that we're going to talk about today comes actually from a 2005 paper in Science, and it's called Soft Tissue Vessels and Cellular Preservation in Tyrannosaurus Rex. And it's by uh, Schweitzer, Whitmire, Jack Horner, who is one of the famous paleontologists up there, and Taporsky. And the story was really cool. It's not actually described in the science paper, but it was in the exhibit there. Um, they found soft tissues preserved in a femur of T-Rex. Yeah. I mean, in the paper, they said that these were still elastic and remained elastic after several dehydration, rehydration cycles. And it seemed a little Jurassic Park. Yes, exactly. So, um, I mean, 2005, I was doing my master's work back then, but not on, you know, biological things. So I guess that's why I didn't really care about this too much, despite being a huge Jurassic Park fan. Um, but this is for real stuff. They found blood vessels in a T-Rex, but the way they found it was super cool. So they found this one specimen, um, 1125, and it was this T-Rex that was sort of up on this up on this ledge. It was eight meters up. They sort of found a piece of it sticking out. It was a really hard dig to get it up out of this wall because it was basically on a vertical wall. And so they pull out this huge femur, and it's too heavy once they've coated it the way that paleontologists do in the field. You know, you're going to encase the bone for transport. And it right. was too heavy to get it out with a helicopter. So what they had to do was saw it in half. And if they hadn't have, and I can't imagine making that decision, right? You've got this beautiful specimen. <laughs> yeah. It's all intact. And you have to saw it in half. But if they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have found this. And so they found literally flexible blood cells. This isn't like a map of what the blood cells would have looked like. It's the actual blood vessels and cells of this T-Rex. Yeah, and I mean, I knew that there were some pretty incredible things that have been preserved in the past. They even say in the paper, like feathers and that kind of thing. But right. blood vessels. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is some Jurassic Park stuff right here. <laughs> like These are for real. And so what they were able to tell is they compared this T-Rex sort of, I don't, because I'm not a biologist or a paleontologist, I don't know the specifics of like what part of the vessels that were preserved, but they were able to compare these parts with an ostrich. So modern day, you know, right, uh, right what dinosaurs turned into, essentially, and they're near identical. But they were also able to tell, and they talked about this more at the actual exhibit, was that they could see from the blood vessels and the type of sort of blood they found in there that it was a female T-Rex. She was quite small, which they probably knew already from the bones, and that she hadn't actually ovulated yet, but she was very close to becoming sort of old enough and starting to produce eggs. And they could tell that by comparing that to modern ostriches and their cycles and they could see that that was very similar, and the T-Rex was about to produce eggs when she died. That's incredible. <laughs> it's like it's a 65 million year old. I mean, it was probably older than that. Well, they were around at the end, but somewhere around there, 
and we have these blood vessels and could tell that this one specific animal was about to reproduce. That's unbelievable. And I know this is a 10-year-old paper, but it just really blew me away. That's so cool. And the exhibit was just fantastic about it. And it's, it's made me look up all the rest of these papers because, wow, right? Yeah, well, and, you know, it's kind of interesting to think, too, that uh, someday it's possible that some of us might have fossil numbers. Right, so we might be fossils, too. Um, what was so cool about this, you know, how did this happen, and how have we not seen it before? Because we've been collecting dinosaur fossils for hundreds of years, we as humans, in our present state. Um, right. But they, they say in the paper that the unusual preservation of the originally organic matrix may be due in part to the dense mineralization of dinosaur bone because a certain portion of the organic matrix within extant bone is intracrystalline and therefore extremely resistant to degradation. So basically these vessels got caught in between the bone mineralizing into a fossil, and that's how they got preserved. So, I mean, it's a pretty small chance, and like I said, there would have been no way for them to know had they not had to cut this thing apart. (laughs) Exactly. Um, What I'd be interested in now is I wonder if, you know, we talked last week sort of about using SEMs and things to make um, models. And so I wonder if they've gone and maybe made some 3D printings of these T-Rex vessels now. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, it'd be a great way to visualize them. Uh, uh, yeah. And cheap enough now <laughs> to do. Right, exactly. So now you've got all these great SEM images and you could even scan these bones and wow, that's using today's 3D technology. Easily have a replica of some dinosaur leg vessels. It's crazy. All right. Well, that's your Fun Paper Friday for this week. If you want to send us suggestions for Fun Paper Friday or just send us your favorite Pluto photo or your Pluto time photo, you should definitely do that. We'd love to see them and repost them for everybody else to see. Shannon, how can they do that? Exactly. They can send us their pictures, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com, and we'll put those up at www.don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.